You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. To Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he once threw a clock out the window just so he could see time fly. A waka waka! It's Mr. Jeff McLaughlin. <laughs> that joke was older than the sundial that I used to tell time in my backyard. <laughs> hey, even a sundial is right twice a year. It's that's true, unless it's in the shade. Wow, that's an, that's going back. Does that mean we're running out of jokes? I might could be. be. <laughs> that could, could exactly be what it could, is. Could could very well be. Next week it'll be like, and Jeff McLarjudes, the man whose name sounds like Ook banging two rocks together in cave number four. <laughs> yeah. What's up? Oh, not much, man. I was having a conversation with my son. We were driving around and he was complaining about a band that he likes changing their sound record to record. Admittedly, we both like bands that put out a hundred million thousand records a year. Right. Like, I don't know if you've ever listened to King Gizzard, the Lizard Wizard. You can't collect their records because they put out one like almost every single day. No, but your son actually told me about them. Like the the one and only text I got from him says that. <laughs> and they're they're great records and stuff. But like, this other band that he we, that we were talking about and how the sound of the band changed as members changed in and out. It surprised me that he was so vehemently disliking the iteration of the band that he he was we were listening to at that time in my car. And I said, ah, you know, it's funny. Like, there's some guys who change their style over and over again to try and find something that hits, but it never hits. Even though every time they do it, they do it well. And he looked at me and he said, what what does that mean? I said, "Ah, let me tell you about a guy named Everlast. So I went and found this this song from an an, an old Ice-T record because Everlast was one of the rhyme syndicate, like one of Ice-T's 925 employees who would come and rap for nine minutes on the end of every one of his albums. Right. And yeah. he was in there. He's like a gangster rap. It was great. I looked forward to him in all of those rhyme syndicate sessions. Then in about 1990, when Ice-T left his record company and pretty much said like, hey, entourage of rhyme syndicate, you're all free on your own. He helped Everlast put out a, like a swing soul record. I was about to say, that's a really, pretty nice way to put it. Pretty yeah. nice way to put you're fired, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The, the rhyme unemployment syndicate. But he helped him like put out and produce the record. Same producer that produced Ice T, Donald D, was the producer of that, and it's a good record. It sounds like Boys to Men, kind of. It's not bad at all. Okay, it's very unlike what he was doing before. Right, which I think is like odd because I know exactly who you're talking about. If people listening don't, because this guy went on to be House of Pain. Yeah, right? that was the next record he did. Like four years later. Was right. jump a, was the House of Pain record with Jump Around on it and all yeah. the other songs that no one remembers because they're all terrible. Yeah, to the absolute uh, like ecstasy of white people everywhere. Yeah, and then he had a heart attack in the studio not long after that. Jeez, and had too much they, jumping yeah, around. Had, <laughs> not enough jumping around, I guess. 
And they had to put in, I think he has a either a pig valve or a mechanical valve in his heart because that's what failed. That's genetic more sighting, kids. And uh, yeah. And he came back and he became like a sort of acoustic guitar folk singer type guy. Did the song right. What It's Like and had two, two hits off of that record and then just sort of vanished again. He comes up every now and then and like there's like the best of the 90s tours where it's like 38 acts. They all come out and they play two songs and they leave. Right. He shows up on those every now and then, but he he reinvented himself like that weird four times and all four are really really different. Kind of Going back to like the 70s and 80s, similar to that, like changing musical styles as they go along. One, all five of the Police albums are very very different from each other. Right. You know, they started out as punk, went into this like weird avant-garde stuff, touched upon reggae a little bit. And then ended up with this almost, you know, adult contemporary. And Joe Jackson, too. Joe Jackson's another one that really spanned a wide musical brush. I don't even know how you can be a Joe Jackson fan because every single one of his albums sound completely different. Yeah. His voice never changes, but his style is different on every record. He's super easy to spot, though. Like, if you know his voice, you can hear him. He sessions on all kinds of people's records. Yeah. Joe Jackson does. I was listening to the... um, to the Ben Folds produced William Shatner record has been yep. on the cover version of Pulp's Common People that Shatner sings. The chorus is all Joe Jackson. The oh, first really? time I heard it, I'm like, oh, that's Joe Jackson. Hey. You know? Big regret I have is I had a chance to go see Joe Jackson for free whenever I was in Los Angeles, but we had just you know driven cross country. I right. was not really in the mood to go out. I just wanted to sleep at that point. All right, hey, before we get our show proper started, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question for you. Uh, Jeff, I I know you love football, meaning soccer, but American football is something else. Uh, Yes, something else that I definitely do not love, so this will be a fun trivia question. You'll never get this because I didn't get it either. I had to look it up, but I thought it was an interesting category. How many teams, as of this writing, in the length of the NFL – have had perfect seasons. They didn't lose any games throughout the season, mm-hmm. including the Super Bowl. So they won the whole season and the Super Bowl. How many teams have done that? Uh, and, and, and name the teams. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So this a lot is of guessing double, involved here. There's going to be a lot of guessing involved. This is like a double trivia question. One, I have to. you have to assume that I know that there's more than any than one team that I'm going to get wrong. And... To how many games they actually play in a season? I am the. I watch so little football; it's like I almost watch it. That's how little football I watch. I <laughs> bump into it by mistake, and it's like, is that football? Is it already football season? And then I immediately, my brain thinks of something different. So I'll, at the end of the show, I will get this one wrong. All right, but this is the week beginning July the 11th, and I believe it is your turn to start. Oh, heavens to Murgatroyd. July 11th, 1979, Skylab, the first and so far the only American-operated orbital space station, succumbs to orbital drift, and its orbit has decayed enough so that it crashes into the Earth's atmosphere, finally goes down over the Indian Ocean and into Western Australia. I remember this was like a huge deal, like like the world was panicking because they were like, yeah, we got some news, guys. This thing is going to be dropping out of orbit and coming into Earth, and... Normally things just like burn up, like, you know, most meteors just burn up in the atmosphere. We got a good idea that this isn't going to burn up and this is just going to land. Right, because it's 82 tons of metal and it's probably, there are pieces that are just going to, they're going to hit the earth. We don't know where they're going to hit. Right. 
we could make some projections, but, you know, uh, you might want to consider buying yourself a nice motorcycle helmet and spending the night in the basement. Yeah. Uh, uh, good news is you get a three out of four chances of it landing in the water. So Sky, Skylab's pretty interesting in that it was designed in the 1960s by Werner von Braun, the man <laughs> who helped design the uh, Apollo rockets, and we won't talk about the past before Operation Paperclip. It doesn't it exist in certain books, I can tell you that. It's true. It was designed originally in like, you know, like the space station in 2001, A Space Odyssey, the big donut-shaped one? Yes. That was what Skylab was sort of supposed to be. That was his vision for it. Uh-huh. But it wasn't feasible to build. We just didn't have the technology. Right. So ultimately, what they put up was a bunch of interconnected tubes, like a big habitrail uh, in orbit <laughs> that was a uh, sort of a lo- it looked like a telescope kind of pointed out at space. Well, and the astronauts just like walk around in little bubbles like a hamster? Not, nope. They <laughs> just, they, all they could do was back and forth through like five or six interconnected tubes. Okay. It was designed so that it could be pushed back into orbit because it didn't have any of its own maneuvering thrusters. Right. But delays in the development of the space shuttle prevented it from ever being pushed into orbit because we didn't have the technology to put the space shuttle up to push it into orbit. Mm-hmm. So it was abandoned and came crashing down. The punchline of the story is that when it did land, the pieces scattered out across parts of Western Australia. Uh-huh. And the Western the Australian government was super pissed, especially at NASA, because, you know, whenever potentially radioactive space junk falls, you don't want it to fall on a foreign country or because it could cause an international incident. So right. Australia fined NASA $400, Bill. <laughs> For littering. $400 for littering, yes. And I'm sure it was calculated something like, Oh, crikey! <laughs> There's metal all over! You nearly crushed my wallaby! <laughs> that looks like about $400 worth of damage there! And that's what they did. 400 bucks. I'm sure NASA wrote that check in a hurry before they added more zeros to it. Alright. Uh, moving on to the 12th. Boy, things have changed a lot in the last however many years, because July the 12th, 1976, was the debut of the game show The Family Feud. With, still yeah, it is. And, but it was, a, yeah, it was originally hosted with by Richard Dawson, who was on Hogan's Heroes prior to that. And, yeah, and his big, like, gimmick was he always kissed all the ladies, like, big tongue kisses, too. No, 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 but <laughs> not that bad. But, like... You know, he would kiss all the ladies. Now, in 2022, that ain't happening. One, you know, we're in the age of COVID. And two, we're in the age of not kissing people, the, you know, well, like that. It was it was well before that, too, that he, he actually, it, that was what got him thrown off the show. Oh, was it? He, he, yeah, he did, a, he did a kiss and I believe a booby grab uh, oh, nice. on, on the show. And the woman was like, oh, oh, I have lawyers in my family. And yeah. Richard Dawson was sent packing. It's been hosted by Steve Harvey pretty much. I don't know if it's since then, but it's been hosted by Steve Harvey for like a decade or more now. And between that, it was hosted by Louis Anderson. Oh, that's right. That's right. The gameplay hasn't changed. No, it's basically the same rules. Yeah, basically the same rules uh, as it always has been. I mean, the board's a little more digital now, but uh, yep, they serve survey 100 people, top five answers on the board, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot more risque humor now, with uh, especially with Steve Harvey. I see a lot of clips like on TikTok and stuff like that. Yes. Steve Harvey is the absolute master of giving the, are you an idiot 
face. <laughs> he definitely he definitely has that down. There's a, a clip from that show where he just he walks off the stage shaking his head and he goes and he sits in the audience. And he says like, "I'm going to stay out here with you guys. I don't know who hosts this show, but they better get a new guy." And it was so funny. It's he's really funny at that show. And he he makes it watchable. Even that's I don't watch a lot of TV, but that's a game show that I go back to look at, right? Um, with surprising frequency. So, man, th- this country for whatever reason has incredible longevity with its game shows. I mean, think about you know Family Feud's been around for you know barreling headfirst towards fifty years. Wheel of Fortune's been around. Um, what's the other one? A Jeopardy. Has been around for a very, very long Since time. The 50s, it, it, yeah. Well, I mean, there was a, a dead zone for a, a little yeah, while. There's but. a gap, but it still came back. Right. I mean, and and they haven't changed much. Like one of the things that's so great about Family Feud is that the rule set hasn't changed. It's the same rule set as the 1970s. The content's a little bit different because that changes with the culture. Right. But the mechanics of the game, it's like Monopoly. It hasn't changed. It goes to show you that if you design something well. And you take into account the flexibility that the stuff that you put into it is going to change. The mechanics of the thing that make it work yep. don't have to. And it can it can stay fresh and funny and relevant for 50 years. Yep. I remember watching one time when they had the Muppets on and Louis Anderson was the host. And there was a lot of like modern Muppets that I didn't recognize. And there was one, it was Pepe. He was a shrimp, you know. Yes. And it's just, it's just a very small puppet doesn't have hands and whenever he hit the buzzer the question was uh name something that you're afraid to do the first time but after you do it you know you're okay right pepe hits the buzzer with his face because it's the puppeteer's hand you know right smashes it with his face and then he says this is the skydiving okay and (laughs) louis anderson took a good solid minute to compose himself because he could not stop laughing. Yeah. All right. Next up. Uh, July 13th, 1913. Uh, a nice mix of numbers there. Sure. The first filmed pie fight, which would go on to become a physical comedy staple, is shot for the film uh, A Noise from the Deep, which is a Mabel. It's technically it's a Mabel Norman film. She was a humongous star for Max Sennett Pictures in the 1910s. Yep. And also features an early appearance from Fatty Arbuckle mm-hmm. and from the Keystone Cops. Right. So she hits Arbuckle in the face with a pie, custard pie. And that, I guess, caused so much uproarious laughter in 1913 that virtually every single Max Sennett comedy and every other comedy short filmed from then on featured some form of that particular visual gag. Oh, right yeah. up through when the Three Stooges had, you know, Joe Besser in there and they couldn't touch him. <laughs> Still threw pies at him. I was just about to say, the Three Stooges, that's a staple. The lemon meringue pie. Bang, right, right. in the face, yeah. Right. Yep, and it, it started in this in this particular uh, Mabel Norman film. Now, I can't find this particular film online anywhere. I, I'm going to guess it's one that was probably shot on nitrate, so it's degraded and it no longer exists. Right. But there's a ton of Mabel Norman films on YouTube that are really funny, and she was really talented for the limitations of that medium. Mm-hmm. And somebody whose name should be way, way well more uh, well known than it is. Right. Yeah. Un- unfortunately, Fatty Arbuckle is more is the more famous of the two, but probably more infamous than famous, yeah. so to speak. He's uh, 
He's worth a Google, but I'm not going to talk about him. And At any rate, go go check out the Mabel Norman stuff. She's really funny. Yeah. I'm going to guess that the whole pie in the face thing kind of carried over from vaudeville. You know? Likely. Yeah, like that and the whole, like, you know, seltzer bottle, seltzer bottle down the front of the pants kind of gag. Yeah, and, and like that kind of comedy, you know, it had longevity for a while as film was kind of be coming into its own. Mm-hmm. Not only as it was bec- they were becoming talkies, but then the short subject film started to sort of dwindle off like the Three Stooges and Buster Keaton as Keaton went on to make longer films and sound films and the Three Stooges kept making the Max Senate type comedies. But even when they stopped, there was no one else who was doing it. The Little Rascals were already long gone by then. That sort of hard physical slapstick comedy mm-hmm. just just sort of dropped off. People got more interested in, I forget the name of the, the term for it, but it's more linguistic comedy. Yeah. Uh, screwball. Screwball comedy is what, what sure. it's called. Again, because you have the medium of the human voice as part of the filmmaking, it, you can do more with people telling jokes to one another or being funny to one another than you can with them just tripping over things or smashing into stuff. And that's a definite thing. Like, comedy evolves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's uh, so many people from, like, Generation X that complain, like, oh, you can't make jokes like that anymore. It's like, yeah, it's, well, it's not that you just can't make it anymore. You can. You can make those jokes all you want. It's just that modern audiences don't laugh at it. Just like in the 1950s, audiences weren't laughing at people shoving seltzer bottles down their pants. Nope. Yep. Comedy of all. funny. All right. Um, here's something that culturally everybody loves. The planet Mars. Um, so July 14th, 1965 is the first successful flyby of Mars. It was NASA's Mariner 4. It flies by Mars, capturing the first images of another planet ever returned from deep space. Yeah, That's the expedition that dispelled, finally, the idea that there were canals on Mars that uh, some ancient civilization had used to carry water around as it was trying to save itself from dehydration, which was proposed by Schiaparelli in like 1904, 1890 or something, Uh when uh, he called through his uh, telescope, he observed something that he described as as canally which translates technically into channels, but in the United States, that became canals. And that influenced, like, H.G. Wells and science fiction and thoughts about Mars and potential for Martian life all the way up until Mariner was like, nope, nothing here but sand. Yeah, Um, a lot of beachfront property and no beach, yeah. You know, oh, look at a face. I think that was Mariner that took that picture, too. So, yeah, uh, Mars has been romantic for, you know, NASA for a very, very, very long time. Uh, that's probably going to be the next place that humans end up going. Uh, I don't want to go. Doesn't look nice. But I mean, we're always talking about it, and we'll end up doing it. I don't know if we'll get to see it in our lifetime, but we'll end up doing it. It's uh, as of right now, it is a six-month one-way ticket. Yep, it is indeed. Unless you're Matt Damon. I hope you're really into potatoes, yeah. <laughs> Unless you're Matt Damon or my favorite of the lesser Mars movies, less scientifically accurate Mars movies is the one the one with Harlan Williams. Remember that one? Nope. It's a Disney movie, and he goes with a group of people to Mars. Um, there are a lot of fart in spacesuit jokes, which I don't <laughs> know why those are so funny, but they are very funny. So that's like the Max Sennett comedy for the future is farts in spacesuits. But uh, yeah, it was pretty good. Rocket Man is what it's called. Oh. Uh, I only saw the one that's about Elton John. Yep, you don't want to watch this one by mistake thinking you're going to see a guy singing Candle in the Wind. Yeah, not a lot of fart jokes in that one, yeah. All right, what do we got for the 15th? 
July 15th. Uh, <laughs> 1989 friend of the show and u.s vice president dan quayle states oh dan quayle you know this is we're coming up to the end of season four of twibbly over here and we've been riding dan quayle's tails <laughs> this whole year so this is probably going to be our last mention of our former vice president and well thanks dan thanks for all the laughs what do we got you know I, dan i would say dan quayle's coattails but I get distracted by his mittens, which are pinned to his coat. So I don't even see the tails. <laughs> and his name written on his underwear and Sharpie marker. So anyway, here's another quality Dan Quayle quote. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the quote, then I'll explain it. So here's the quote. As America celebrates the 20th anniversary of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Lukens walking on the moon. <laughs> Bill, in that quote, there yeah. are two names. One of them is an astronaut. Do you know which one? Yeah, Neil Armstrong. Armstrong. <laughs> yeah. The other one is not an astronaut. I keep on wanting to say Buzz Lightyear, but uh, yeah, it's supposed to be Buzz Aldrin, but he said Buzz Lukens. Buzz Lukens. And Buzz Who's Lukens that? was a sex offender who got busted for banging pages <laughs> in Washington. Yeah, he was like a congressman, right? Yeah. Yep, he was, and he got in trouble. That must have been the, right around the same time. I guess you could make that argument like, well, you know, it's the, they're not that far off. But yes, they are, yeah. <laughs> yes, they are. Uh, you know it would be awesome if, like, Buzz Aldrin just, like, walked up and punched Dan Quayle right in the face? That would, that would be fantastic. I want that I'd to be Buzz Aldrin's answer for everything. Just a punch in the mouth. Just yeah. punch in the face. They, they put, lay the guy right out on the sidewalk. It's irrespective <laughs> of the age of, of Buzz Aldrin. They, they should make that a law. Um, yeah, it would be the same as, like, you know, as if uh, you were giving a tribute to the, the, the history of John Wayne. And you kept calling him John Wayne Gacy. Yeah. You know? I think was... oh, I've never seen a film as good as Stagecoach. I remember seeing John Wayne Gacy. All right. Uh, moving on to the 16th. This is such a weird, like, I, I can't get over this. July 16th, 1963, Paul Winchell, who was on, a, he had his own show called, ready for this? The Paul Winchell Show. Hard to remember. He receives the first U.S. patent for an implantable artificial heart. So this guy, Paul Winchell, host of a TV show, and a ventriloquist, right. is the guy that invented the in, the artificial heart. Imagine that, you have an artificial heart and they're like, hey, you know who made that? That guy with the freaking puppets. The guy the guy that was the voice of Tigger. Yeah, that's right, <laughs> that's right, he was. He was the yeah, voice of was. Tigger in the Winnie the yep. Pooh movies. Oh my God. Yep. So what's kind of cool is like, you know, as someone who has a passing interest in technology that keeps hearts alive. Oh, I thought you his, said you his, had a p passing interest in ventriloquist puppet, but okay. I, nope, <laughs> I don't care about ventriloquists, but boy, do I care about things like artificial hearts. His his artificial heart worked by having a an implantable bag that would do the pumping action and an, an outside worn motor, battery powered motor that would give the power to make the pumping action happen. Uh-huh. And it, it was designed in a way that was meant to be able to give the person who had it installed a relatively normal life for the time that it was running. It's really, it's a really innovative way. It differs from the artificial heart that I think it was Barney Clark had installed in his chest in the 19, late 1980s in that that one was powered internally by an internal battery. He lived, I think, 96 days with that artificial heart. The Jarvis model, Jarvis artificial heart. Oh. Um, but this one comes way earlier. It's really interesting that he and Heimlich, which thinking about the way that the heart pumps. That's another makes, thing. Makes sense. That's right? another thing. He was, he developed this uh, artificial heart 
with the help of Henry Heimlich, who is the creator of the Heimlich Maneuver. Yep. The first artificial heart was was invented by a guy with puppets and the guy that... Uh, Squeezed people. people. Yeah, the, the guy was really <laughs> into, like, improper bear hugs, yeah. Yes, so it goes to show you what you can do if you have the right friends and one of them focuses on squeezing and the other one focuses on puppets. Yeah. See? And let's wrap up the week. July 17th, 1983. The very first championship of the nascent football league, the United States Football League, or the USFL, takes place. And it's between the Michigan Panthers and the Philadelphia Stars. And the Panthers beat the Stars 24-22. to And no one remembers because it took place on July 17th in about 100-degree heat. <laughs> oh, my God. So... I don't know if you remember when the USFL started. It was a big deal. It was like a Reagan thing. Yeah. Reagan wanted football all year, right? Ronald Reagan. So some there was some government money thrown around, I'm sure. And the owners of the NFL were like, well, if we put something in the offseason, it's not going to impact the on-season. Yeah, we, we can come up with something. And they just pretty much just created a new league to play in the summer. But they didn't take into consideration, like, that it's 100 degrees in the sun. Yeah. In and the, the summer. Yeah, with very little opportunity for shade. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah, no shade, and you're wearing pads and a helmet and... And running know. around, yeah. But didn't the football have, like, the flag on it, too? Yes. Yeah, I thought so, yeah. And it's not the first time that someone else has said, like, we need more football. You know what we need? We need more football. There's been uh, Vince McMahon, right? Yeah. The was, XFL. Yeah, there was the XFL. I remember him making the commercials, not commercials, but, like, the press conferences for that. And he's like, where's my football? He wanted to, a, an off-season football. He's one of those people that once he gets an idea in his head, you can't talk him out of it. Because I'm quite sure a lot of his yes-men were doing like, hey, Vince, uh, remember the USFL? That didn't work out either. So uh, there was the XFL. That tried, that failed. And then he tried it again at the beginning of 2020. And COVID you know, put that to bed. Uh, so we ended up going bankrupt with XFL twice. Wasn't XFL like a co- like almost like a combination of the rules of arena football and regular and like you can't use NFL football rules because that's that's wholly owned by the cartel of owners. Right, that, that's the NFL. They'll sue you. So he had to change some stuff up to make it palatable. Arena football is another thing. It never got far. They tried making some like it still find, exists. Like, the, ca- yeah, the equivalent of like cable TV UHF network show like. It's time to watch the Green Briar Fancy Pants versus the Secaucus Bananas. And it's like, who? You know who owns a uh, arena football team? Kiss. Of course they do. I was going to say, yep. You can find tickets for that at kiss.com. The XFL XFL actually still exists. It is now owned by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Oh. Yep, he bought it out from underneath Vince and maybe next year. We'll see. I'm sure he's making so much money hand over fist, it's probably a tax buy. Like, look, I own the XFL. Mm-hmm. Oh, Mr. Johnson, uh, Dwayne The Rock. Clearly, we need to give you back some money. Yeah. This is the government speaking at this point. It's kind of like whenever like, that YouTube guy bought the like $4 million Pokemon card. He just wanted to spend money. Right. <laughs> Was it like Brewster's Millions, right? He buys the upside down stamp and then he mails a letter with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he makes it valueless. Yeah. Let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. July the 11th, 1957, former lead singer of Bauhaus, solo artist, and then current lead singer of the reunited Bauhaus, Mr. Peter Murphy. He, he was, I saw him live. 
I saw him. Oh, you uh, get to see him, really? I saw him in 1992 when he was on the Holy Smoke tour. I saw him in Boston. It was a really good show. Oh, yeah. Uh, that might have been the second time I went to, well, it's like the House of Blues now. I can't remember. Uh, the Avalon. Right. But I saw him at the Avalon. Yeah, it was that was a really good show. I was listening to one of my uh, you know, streaming services and all that, and the song cuts you up from his, his deep album, 1989. That came up, and I was like, oh, I remember this song. That song, Cuts You Up, is fantastic. It is. He has a, and he has a super good voice. And I was like, oh, wait, Peter Murphy, he was the singer for Bauhaus. And I actually like went back because I never really listened to Bauhaus too much. I went back and I listened to it and I like it. But I think I'm more drawn to Peter Murphy's solo stuff. His solo stuff is better produced. The, I find the Bauhaus records sound like this is going to sound odd, mm-hmm. it's, but they sound like an Adam and the Ants cover band. Sort of. <laughs> Um, and they're not a good one, but they sort of fall into that weird new romantic style, but they don't, they don't feel like they're comfortable there. Some goth, it's like jumping yeah, yeah. The, the podcast right now to strangle you, I'm sure, but. I'm sure. But, uh, he uh, had another yeah, band called Dally's Car. Are you familiar? No, don't know that yeah, one. Yeah, I'm not familiar either. It's just listed here. I don't know it. Again, I like Bella Lugosi's Dead. That's the signature song of Bauhaus. Yep. And I like it because it's long, and I like the weird echoey drums, and I like all that part. Mm-hmm. The r- rest of their stuff, mm, less interesting for me. But Solo yeah. is great. Deep was a great record, and so was Holy Smoke. All right, moving on. July 12th, 1948, Exercise Guru and diminutive curly-haired man in short shorts, Richard Simmons, who is one of the rare TV personalities that I always looked forward to seeing on like afternoon television or late night mm-hmm. because he brought a ton of joy kind of everywhere he went. He was everywhere for a while. Yep. Like you couldn't not, it's like I was afraid he was going to show up in my house because <laughs> uh, he was around, he was, he was everywhere. But I never, I always looked forward to seeing like, oh, Richard Simmons, he's he's cool. I'll leave this on. Yeah. You know, yeah, I like he, him. He always, he always brought the, the positivity out. Yeah. He was very energetic. Uh, you know, apparently he was a fat kid. And he was in Satyricon, a big fat guy in uh, Fellini film Satyricon. Really? Did not know that. Yeah. And um, and then he started, you know, exercising to lose weight. And then that's all he wanted to do was help people. Oh, okay, cool. And it was great because you would see him in these interviews and he'd be like bouncing off the walls full of energy. And then you would see them like, you see him like holding people's hands and talking to them very genuinely. It really, really, really easy to make fun of the guy, but he knew it too. He knew exactly what he was and who he was and stuff. He famously just dropped off the face of the earth like all at once too. Like he owned a, a studio where people would go and work out with Richard Simmons. Yep. And then one day he just stopped showing up and there was all these like rumors and speculation that his like um, housekeeper housekeeper was keeping him as a hostage and yeah. they had him addicted to drugs and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I I listened to this podcast called like Finding Richard Simmons or Searching for Richard Simmons or something that was really interesting. And then when the podcast kind of like concluded, they you know they went to his door and he answered the door and they're like Richard Simmons. He's like, yeah, what do you want? He's like, are you you know, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm fine. F- off. 
and close the door. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not in so many words, but that's what it came down to. Yeah, yeah. he just yep. wants and to be left alone. He, he wants to be left done. alone. I can understand compassion fatigue. I really can. And yes. I can understand putting as much effort as he did into trying to make exercise non-threatening, fun, not comfortable, but something that was that you would do on purpose because you enjoyed it, not just because you thought it was good for you. Right, something attainable. Right, it was attainable. And he always worked with people who were like ill or old or overweight or infirm in some way and right. showed that everybody could move and, and make positive contributions, not only to themselves, but that when you feel better, you do better. Right. And to see the, that obesity rate continues to go up, the rates of heart disease to continue to go up, even though he was used as a punchline in a lot of David Letterman jokes and a lot of other stuff, he always took it with like a, a level of humility that was way better than the that made fun of him was worth. I'll always owe that guy a debt of gratitude because I think of him when I go to the gym. This is why I'm here because now I understand, I understand that exercise isn't something that hurts me. It doesn't have to be right. something that hurts me. All right, moving on to the 13th. July the 13th, 1951, actress Didi Khan, Khan! Didi Khan, who most people would know as Frenchie from the Grease movie, or movies. Uh, she was also the lip syncer of one of our former worst song ever's, You Light Up My Life. She was in that film as well. I'm not sure what else she's done. You said she did some kid show? Well, if you were a little kid in the late 1980s, then you know her as Dee Dee from the show Shining Time Station, where she shared the stage with a miniaturized Ringo Starr for a couple seasons and a miniaturized George Carlin for others, both playing the same character of Mr. Conductor. Which one made more dick jokes? <laughs> Ringo Starr. Uh, no. Oddly enough, yeah. Uh, uh, she was also on the TV show Benson. She was one of the, the characters on, on Benson with uh, Robert Guillaume. Oh, wow. All right. Who do we got for the 14th? July 14th, 1960, character actress Jane Lynch. She's really funny. She's a singer. She's a comedian. She was in stuff like Best in Show. She was in Two and a Half Men for a while. She was on Criminal Minds. She did the voice of the female Halo-type character in Wreck-It Ralph. Oh, yeah, yeah, She's yeah. She's been yeah, in yeah. all kinds of things. She played Will Ferrell's mother in um, Talladega Nights. And she's generally funny in whatever she's in. She was also like the evil gym teacher in Glee. Jane Lynch. I see. Oh, Oh, okay. All right, on the 15th, July the 15th, 1946, uh, 1970s singer extraordinaire Linda Ronstadt. Oh, yeah. She has a connection to the monkeys, believe it or not. Oh, does she? She does, because she lived near Mike Nesmith, and Mike yep. Nesmith had gone to Don Kirshner and the rest of the producers of the monkeys, and he said, hey, I wrote this song. It be a good monkey song. We should record this for monkeys album that we're yep. doing. For, I think it was for Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones. And they said, all right, play it. And he played it. And they said, ah, it doesn't sound like a monkey song. And he said, I'm one of the goddamn monkeys. You know, <laughs> Of course it sounds like a monkey song. And they said, no, we don't want it. Right. So he took it and he gave it to Linda Ronstadt, who was the singer for a band named the Stone Ponies. Okay. And that song, Different Drum, on the Stone Ponies self-titled album, went number one. Wow. When Mike Nesmith passed away... I knew that story and was like, oh, I wonder if I can find a used copy of a Stone Ponies record so that I'll have a copy of Different Drum. Right. So, I, you know, th this is your quest. So I went to a couple of the record stores that I go to and I found one and I bought it and I was so excited. It was 26 bucks to buy this record by a band that you never hear of, even on oldies radio. Sure. Like, That's all right. I got Different Drum. It's fine. It's probably nobody's played this record in 60 years because it's old and in 
like who listens to the stone ponies and i got home and i was putting on my record player and i put the needle down and it sounded like this all the way through the goddamn record so even though i have the song it's all scrackly and crackly and have you been able to like track down a digital version of it at least you can hear yeah yeah yeah. there's a bunch of digital versions but i wanted to i wanted to have one of the original ones this is an original printing from six from 66 or 67 she didn't stick around with the stone ponies long she booted those guys and ended up touring with the guys who would become the eagles glenn fry and don henley for like five or six years after that and then they went off to become the eagles and she went off to Continue being Linda Ronstadt. She has a hell of a pedigree of a lot of nominations and a lot of wins. You know, best female pop performance, you know, straight into the 90s. Unfortunately, she was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and she can't sing anymore. She says, I can't sing a single note, which must be awful. Because even if you're a retired musician, you're still going to play music like around the house. And for a retired singer who just can't even basically hum along with the songs on the radio, that must be something. That must be so heartbreaking. Yeah, that's got. That's definitely got to suck. Like, well, that's a high note. Uh, let's let's move on to the sixteenth then. Let's move on to the sixteenth. Then we'll we'll uh, we'll try and perk things up. July sixteenth. 1963 character actress and one-time friend of Drop Dead Fred, Phoebe Cates is born. Speaking of perky, uh, Phoebe, Phoebe Cates, the most paused woman in VHS history, I am sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And for those of you who have no idea who the hell we're talking about, she's the best friend of one of the main characters in Fast Times at Ridgemont High who climbs out of a pool and takes off the top of her bikini. Yes, the famous red bikini and the... The, the, the Cars problem, moving in stereo. Yeah, I cannot hear the song Moving in Stereo by The Cars without seeing that scene in my mind's eye. She was in some other stuff too. Again, Drop Dead Fred was was like a big deal when it came out because it introduced, reintroduced, I guess, Rick Mayall to the United States. Right. Uh, she was in Gremlins. Oh, yeah, that's right. Gremlins and Gremlins 2. Yep. She married Kevin Klein in 1989 and like subsequently retired. She did she didn't really do too much after. I think I think Drop Dead Fred was like the last movie that she did. Yeah, it might be. Yep. And she didn't do too, you know, I don't know if she did much at all after that. I know she was on a TV show called Lace, but I'm not sure where that falls into the timeline either. But yeah, she just dropped out of the business. She didn't have to work anymore. Uh, she made her money. She's married to Kevin Klein. She's got two kids, and she just, yeah, she just retired. Hey, well, all right. And wrapping up the birthdays, July 17th, 1965, the youngest of Sean Penn, hey, speaking of Sean Penn, who was in Fast Times Merchant on High, the youngest of Sean Penn's brothers, Alex Winter, who you would best know as Bill from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh. Did oh. you know that? Did you know I, that he I, is Sean Penn's brother? I had no idea he was Sean Penn's brother. But now that you look at him... You're like, oh, yeah, you yeah, can totally clearly. see it. Yeah, yeah they, they all came out of the same machine. Yeah, yeah. Um, he looks a lot more like Chris Penn than he does Sean Penn. I think he looks like he looks like Sean Penn with Chris Penn's hair. It's like, yeah, it's, it's like the other two brothers got put in the hat around Collider. And then there's a fourth brother, uh, Michael Penn, who had that one-hit wonder in the 90s there. Yes. No, no doubt. At some point, that no, song man. will come back. Yeah. First song ever, yes. Uh, and, oh, and lest, lest we forget that he was also in The Lost Boys. He was in The Lost Boys. He also directed uh, some like avant-garde 
westerns with a bunch of punk stars in the 80s with mm-hmm. guys from the clash and and other stuff that used to air on night flight every now and then and made a bunch of weird indie films and stuff uh and i think he's probably the main reason that bill and ted's third movie even got made oh yeah i liked it i saw the third one i liked it the premise of the movie is they have to do that concert that that brings the world together they have to get to that concert and play that concert and play the best song ever which is the complete opposite of the worst song ever all right jeff this is one of those worst song ever's that guess what i like it i like Uh, the song i never heard this song before until you sent it to me and i also like it but I can admit that there's a lot of issues here. We are talking about a song by your friend and mine, Fred Schneider, who who is most famous for being somebody. The guy who yells. (laughs) The guy who yells in the B-52s. Yeah, somebody in the B-52s. I don't want to call him a singer because Fred Schneider can't sing. And I don't mean he can't sing like I can't sing. I mean he can't sing like a, a Welsh corgi can't play pinball. Right. He's like, it's not in his wheelhouse. It's not something he could do. He could talk, and then he could talk loud, but that's about the range. That's about the long and the short of it. He, in an alternate universe, if the B-52s were a ska band, he would be the guy that dances around. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that's a perfect description. So uh, we're talking here about Fred Schneider's cover of Coconut by Harry Nilsson. And yes. let's, let's just play this clip because this is something. You put the lime in the coconut, drag a boat up. Put a lime in the coconut, drag a boat up. Lime in coconut, drink a lot. You put the lime in the coconut, 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 This is the thing is like the Harry Nelson coconut song. Mm-hmm. I I don't like that song. The first time I heard that song was on the Muppet Show. Yes, right. I don't think I actually ever heard the Harry Nelson song until much much later in life. Mm-hmm. And then, but I do remember whenever I graduated graduated high school. One of the first things I did is I spent the afternoon on Martha's Vineyard, mm-hmm. and we went down to the Katama Beach, and there was this like Richie ritzy, you know, kind of Martha's Vineyard resident kind of a person sitting on the beach with his family and he breaks out his acoustic guitar. And I was like, oh boy, this never goes well. And he started playing coconut, put the lime in the coconut and put it all up. And I was like, (laughs) it's like, "Uh, uh, excuse me, uh, sir, sir, can you please shut up? I'm just trying to relax. I don't want to hear your freaking, you know, open mic night. Right. This song already has a rock in my shoe, but Fred Schneider just brings that kind of Fred Schneider magic to it. Yes. Where if you don't like songs where people sing but yell, you will definitely <laughs> love this song because he just yells all the lyrics at you. That uh, said, yep, I said. loved this song. I listened to it like 65 times in a row. And it, it was like hearing... Um, like a mashup of like if like the dead Kennedys had gone on the Muppet show, that's what this sounds like, <laughs> right? If Jello Biafra was doing a duet with Animal, that's what this sounds like. It is so funny that you say that because 
I remember when we were doing like the band thing back in the early 90s, there was this band called Atomic Tree Breakfast. And the singer of that band had this like hypothesis that Fred Schneider and Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys were actually the same person. Right. And I'm not convinced they're not. You never see Jello and Fred in the same place. No. It's like Superman and Clark Kent. They look very similar. And they both have that slightly effeminate cadence to their voice when they speak. Yes. And neither one of them can sing. So, yeah. What I found myself doing after listening to Live in the Coconut for the 35th time was finding car chases on YouTube mm-hmm. and syncing up the car chase with the Live in the Coconut song as sung by Fred Schneider. And, <laughs> oh, my God. Was that fun. That fits <laughs> Literally, like the uh, two-lane blacktop, the car chase, it fits. Bullet, it fits. Mad Max with the night cro- the night rider, it fits. It fits all of them. It, per- it is perfect music for a stupid car chase. For some reason, it just maps to them perfectly. So if you want to have some fun, cue them up and turn the sound off on the car chase and let Fred Schneider provide you with the background. It's wicked fun. I want to try lining up Lime in the Coconut with, like, those Russian dash cam car accident videos and see how that works. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't doing the dash cam car accident ones. I was just doing, like, Hollywood because there's a lot, bunch of cuts and things. But it yeah. was uh, it was great, especially with the, the scenes from Mad Max. It was, it was like it was written for it. So you just have, like, the guy, you know, instead of going, I am the Knight Rider, he just goes, yeah, you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and before we wrap up the show, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question for you. The trivia question was, in the history of the NFL, not the USFL, not the XFL, not even arena football, but in the, in the uh, history of the NFL, how many teams have gone completely undefeated for the whole season, including their Super Bowl victory? Uh... You know, my knowledge of football is so deep and vast, I'm going to go with the only other team whose name I can remember, the Chicago Bears. And they uh, also put out a record at the same oh, yeah, year sure. with Refrigerator Perry with the, the Super Bowl shuffle. Yep. But unfortunately in that season, they did not have a perfect season. The only team to ever go a perfect season and win the Super Bowl was in 1972, so fairly early on. Um, 1972 Miami Dolphins went 17 and 0. They only played 17 games. Yeah, they don't play much. It's not like baseball that plays like one less than infinity. Yeah, yeah, they don't play much. Well, okay. That's why everybody thinks there's such a market for football in the off season because there's only 17 games. You know, it must be. It's like we, you know, what we got to do. We got to. These guys are only playing 17 games. We got to get them out there for another 17 when it's blistering hot and they're probably all gonna die. For that kind of money? Yeah. So, uh, like uh, like we often say about other things, of all the things I didn't know, that's one of the things. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That's going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, Bye guys. Buddy. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibley or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends. They'll probably get all the trivia questions right, too. Bastards. <laughs>